0: There was this urgency we felt. We left and right, you know, countless musicians who were experiencing this dramatic gig collapse, starting with the St. Patrick's Day weekend. I mean, next to Christmas, like St. San- Patrick's Day, it's like one of the holy grails for gig time if you're willing to play a little Irish, you know, or something that sounds even Irish to the common person who sounds Irish enough for. So that was tragic for a lot of folks I know that had you know big things lined up there. And so it was just like, hey, while people are still willing to donate, we need to get this off the ground and. Everyone we mentioned too was, was really excited.
1: Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh, and around the globe, human beings are coping with an expanding viral pandemic that has claimed more than 200,000 lives so far and shut down the economic systems of entire countries. Particularly hard hit have been musicians who suddenly find all their gigs canceled and who must now face an uncertain future. How will they live? Where can they turn for help? Here in the United States, I'm embarrassed to say the president and his administration has failed to come up with a comprehensive federal response to this emergency, casting that responsibility instead upon individual states to deal with the pandemic the best they can. Tens of thousands of people are out of work. Many children go hungry. Healthcare professionals and other essential workers, such as those who grow our food, who stock the shelves of the grocery stores, who pick up the trash, who operate our power plants and serve in the military. Each one puts his or her own life at risk in order to help others. Would it not then be easy to forget those who have spent their lives learning how to play musical instruments so that we might all have the gifts of enchantment and comfort that only music can bring into our lives? And will they be there with these gifts when this dark time has finally passed? Well, the other day I received an email from a good friend who lives in Vermont. His name is Forrest Newton, and he wanted me to know about a unique project to help musicians in his part of the world. A Vermont violin maker named Jacob Brillhart had come up with an idea to make a violin that could be raffled off to raise money for a fund to help struggling musicians. Not only would he make the violin, but he would stream the making of the violin in real-time on the Internet so people could see each step in the violin making process. Then two bow makers, one in Vermont and one in Colorado, stepped forward to say they would make a bow together and offer it with the violin as part of the raffle. Then someone donated a case. While well, I wanted to learn more about how this all came together, how the Seven Stars Art Center stepped forward to handle the legal requirements for such a raffle, the jazz violinists who offered to help publicize the raffle, and a host of other people who contributed their time and energy to make the effort a success. Since I began work on the Rosin the Bow project, I've conducted every interview in person. But now because of the pandemic, I can't travel. But I did want this story. So I asked some of the key players in what is now labeled the Violin Building Musician Aid Project to join me for a Zoom conversation. But knowing that the audio quality of Zoom and similar programs is much to be desired, I asked each one to set up a separate recorder and microphone so they could record their part of the conversation. I then asked them to send me their audio files so I could mix them together into a single podcast. And that is the podcast you are about to listen to. It features violin maker Jacob Brillhart, bow makers Eben Bodash-Turner and Evan Orman, producer Emerson Gale, and jazz violinist and head of PR, Jason Anik. At the end of the interview, I will provide information where you can purchase your raffle tickets, and that is something I'm certain you will want to do. Not only will it help a whole bunch of great musicians, but should you win, you will have a wonderful violin, perhaps the one you've been looking for all your life, and also an heirloom that you can pass down to others for generations to come. I know I'm gonna buy a ticket or two. The drawing will take place in May of 2020. We begin our conversation with violin maker, Jacob Brillhart. So give me your, what I call your creation myth. When did the light go on that you were going to do this for your livelihood?
2: Yeah, so um, that came on pretty early actually. Um, when, I was, when I was 11 years old, we were, my grandfather died and we were cleaning out his house and we found a, a violin in the closet. Um, and a friend of my dad's played, and so uh, he decided that, you know, I was going to play the play the fiddle. Um, and so I started taking lessons at a local violin shop um, that Eben, Eben Bodick-Turner here um, works at. And uh, so I'd come in every day, every week, not every day, every week, and, um, and take lessons there. And I, I also, my dad had a woodworking shop, and so I'd spend, you know, a lot of time in, in his woodworking shop. And... My two favorite things were working with him in the woodworking shop and and coming into the violin shop to play the fiddle um, and talking to Eben and the other the other violin makers there. And so pretty much like right off the bat, as as soon as that started happening, it was it was something I was really taken with, you know, because it was the two. It's kind of the marriage of my two passions. And so you know, ever since I was like 12 years old, I wanted to. I was like, I want to be a violin maker when I grow up. And and um, you know, and I was very serious about that. And and uh, held to that until I fulfilled that that goal and continue to fulfill that goal.
1: Uh, what year were you born and, and where are we talking
2: about? Where are you growing up? Yeah, I was born in uh, 1993, so I'm, I'm uh, 27 years old now. And I I grew up in Vermont. I spent spent my whole childhood in Vermont.
1: Great, then you had this idea because of what's happened with the pandemic. Uh, why don't you take me there with that idea and then we'll talk to how you hooked up with Emerson Gale. When did the idea come to you? Was it three o'clock in the morning? I mean, I, really, very specifically, when did you suddenly say, there's all these people, maybe we can help them out, and this would be a good way to do it?
2: Um, you know, it's it's hard to remember the exact, uh, you know, epiphany moment of having this idea. Um, basically, uh, as soon as the pandemic started shutting everything down, um, you know, I, I, I perform as a fiddle player and so I have a bunch of gigs, but then also a lot of my friends have a lot of, have, you know, I'm, I'm friends with a lot of people who are professional musicians. And and um, as soon as the pandemic started shutting everything down, all my gigs were canceled and more importantly, all my friends' gigs were canceled. And I was watching this happen on Facebook, you know, people's status is coming on. What the hell am I going to do? Because... My whole livelihood is 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 gone for the next two months. people saying things like that. and um you know, and I was also scared for you know, just scared for the whole the whole national and global situation and and uh, I guess maybe when i maybe when I get um you know when I feel anxious about things, I like to be really busy. Uh, and so all of these things came together and I thought I thought you know Here's a way if, if I make a violin and I raffle it Then then I'll have, a, I'll have a task that's important that I can really focus on to complete And I'll be doing something to help a lot of people who I really care about and help them You know continue to do make to make beautiful music, which is something I really care about and so You know those two things kind of kind of formed this idea of making a violin and raffling it off to, to raise aid money and then I, you know, I, I'd actually, it took me, I, I came up with the idea, and then I immediately, and I called Eben about it right away, just to chat, um, and and we had a really great conversation there, and then I soon realized that it was basically impossible for me to fulfill this task on my own, because a raffle the is, has a lot of legal requirements about about it, and so I kind of let the idea sit there for a few days and you know I I researched what how to how to have a raffle and and uh, how to make it legal and and immediately got kind of depressed and just kind of put the idea on the shelf and figured I wasn't gonna be able to pull it off and and uh, then let it sit for a few days and then kind of just mentioned the idea to a friend of mine who works at a nonprofit and and she uh, she said she was like we can make this happen. My nonprofit will will support this, and and uh, I got really excited, and I just started calling everyone who I knew who would who would help uh, make this happen. And then the next morning, I called my friend back, and I, and I said, "Okay, let's do this. We're we're gonna have this. You know, we're gonna have this take off." And in that 12-hour period of of having talked to her, uh, her personal situation had completely changed. Um, she had family that were coming from different countries. Uh, to uh, to quarantine at her at her rural isolated location and so she just couldn't deal with the fact of, of of doing a big project like this and so yet again I thought okay it's not going to work you know this is time two where where it's it's failed and I'm not going to be able to, to pull this off and then um, and then I was actually just. I was kind of bummed, and I called my dad, and I was chatting with my dad about it. What well, you know, it sucks. I can't do this. And then he said, "Hey, how about how about Emerson Gale? He's he works at a nonprofit, and he's a very energetic and and intelligent person." And so I I uh, you know just called Emerson out of the blue, and it's, I guess it's probably the first time I've ever called I'll called you Emerson, right? And um, and I called Emerson, and I just started telling him the idea. And I think before I was even done describing what what the whole plan could be emerson was already like totally gung-ho signed on to it and was ready to make this you know make it even bigger than than i had imagined it could be
1: and how did the bow makers get involved at that point yeah so then emerson and i um
2: we we had to write a board proposal to the nonprofit, the seven stars music center that emerson is on the board of and so we spent a couple days getting. I'll, I'll let Emerson maybe talk a little more about that. But we spent a couple days getting getting some uh, logistics together, and then I called Evan again and was chatting about it with him again, and and uh, he got really excited about the idea too. And then he he contacted Evan, and it's just it's you know it's the the whole progress ever since the moment where I called where he called um Emerson, the the whole project has just like snowballed and become this totally organic thing where. Uh, you know, other people's enthusiasm and support has has just kind of poured in and people have volunteered to add to the project by doing what things that they're really good at and made the project way more than, certainly more than it ever could have been if it was just me and, and, um, you know, also more than it ever could have been if it was just me and Emerson. And it's just been a really beautiful experience, really.
1: And I want to go on to Emerson. I'm just going to ask a question while I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about the idea of making violins or being a bow maker, as uh, pretty isolated. I mean, it, it's an occupation of isolation. I know a lot of violin makers, and they and some really embrace that. That's they can't wait to get back to the bench and be there quietly by themselves doing what they do. And now, but you've taken something that we would think of in those terms and created quite a social. Uh, connection to the work you're doing and using these new technologies. That's pretty cool. Yeah.
2: I am mean, honestly, the, in the pro, in the process of, of doing this project, even in, in the first like two weeks from, from the moment of calling Emerson from there on out um, I've, you know, I've probably had more phone conversations and more social interactions with people than I might've had, than I might've had all last year, basically. So Uh, it's, it's really been, it's, it's been, it's been a bit of a paradox here. The fact that, uh, here we are in isolation and yet I've felt more connected to people than I have and, uh, than I usually am. So it's a fun part.
1: That's very cool. All right, Emerson, uh, maybe you could weigh in now and give us from your point when you get the phone call. And I love that, that is seven stars art center. I just, I, I, the, the poetics of that name really appeal to me. So tell me a little bit about them and then you got the call and how you got the the bow makers involved.
0: Sounds good. Thank you. Yeah, weighing in uh, 150 pounds last time I checked and uh, give or take a few, you know, haven't eaten dinner yet. Uh, Can everyone hear me okay? Yeah, yeah. Good to go. Uh, Cheers. Yeah, kind of mind-blowing. It's been uh, three and a half weeks since that breezy early spring day that um, I was actually sitting on the can and got this call from Jake uh, and I was like Jake Billhart oh cool man like he's never called me this is interesting uh, you know we've jammed at some sessions and his family is just you know wonderful musicians to play with and uh, they've you know helped me forced me helped me to learn a lot of Cape Breton tunes I wouldn't have otherwise so I'm really grateful for that and Jake tears it up so a lot to learn from him and uh So, you know, he calls me and we sort of chat for a moment, but he says, yo, down to business. That's my language. And I don't know if you say yo, Jake, but essentially he's like, this is the specific reason I'm calling you. I have this project and, uh, you know, need a nonprofit to make it happen essentially. And as soon as he explained the idea to me, it just, uh, I was thrilled. It just makes so much sense. And it's one of those ideas that, uh, I don't I feel Farley is in a way really also represents Vermont R- really entrepreneurial self-reliant thinking and, and not just Vermont but also musicians around the US and around the globe who in general have to be by trade very entrepreneurial people at bowmakers of course included and uh, so and I had been following the artist Relief tree project uh, which had started about a week and a half before then and had quickly already raised, you know over two hundred thousand dollars for artists in general so we had that model and concept to work with and in that initial phone call we said oh like artist relief tree and yet the picture i was getting in my mind is okay that's the tree you formed from all these roots of these different organizations that were building it together and you know theoretically we were a branch of that tree but also how poetically we were in a way the wood of that tree uh literally you know uh <laughs> that jake was working with and um Right off the bat, I know Nine Athens Music, um, Chuck had generously pitched in to help uh, pay for the wood. And so like immediately there was this support coming in. So I was like, okay, what to do next? Let's let's talk to the board. So we drafted up this, you know, stayed up late the first late night of like, I don't know, 15 night, late nights in a row. And uh, we drafted up this sort of lengthy, let's be fair, uh, proposal that was hard to chop down. There's a lot of moving parts in this project. And I, you know, called everyone up on my board the next day. And it's a small tight-knit group. And uh, which is, which was good because they're checking their email a lot and they're ready to go. And we needed to figure out the finances on the end. There's a lot of links in the chain to make this work financially on the back end. And So and legally and blah, 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 and getting advice from different people about how to run this. But we realized we could. And by noon that day, we had signed an agreement. This is the next day, Sunday, with Jake, fiscal sponsorship to legally uh, do it. And we were moving on ahead with everything. And then that night, it was Jake and I were like, okay, next step, we need a promotional video that we can get to the media sponsors. And So then essentially what happened is we had this very, very intense four-day period before we launched that Wednesday at 5. We're like, okay, we're launching Wednesday at 5. We need all this to come together. We need media sponsors to come on board. Um, Jason was super helpful in, in reaching out to folks and really... Catalyzing the, these vital networks to be aware of folks like um, Fiddle Hell, et cetera, who um, reach a lot of people. You know, speaking of of branches and and roots, um, a lot of these, yeah, these really hard-hitting, you know, grassroots music organizations that really the the heart and soul of this project in so many ways that um, came together to put the word out and. Um, I was, you know, we were setting up the music musician aid application. That was another moving part. We were figuring out, okay, what are our web pages gonna be like? How does this rally up raffle website work we hadn't used before? So we're sort of sorting things, had each other on speed dial. I started to get more informal. I think a few IPAs got involved, various late nights. But long story short, it was yeah, this this period of time that I feel absolutely Uh, 100% engaged in this project and thankfully so I you know just as the lockdown hit I personally had this bad breakup happen so I was really glad to throw myself into something and um, so much came together in terms of the story about the bow makers uh, for example that was uh, I remember editing in Ebon about four in the morning just before it was 3.30 I went to bed about four-ish that that was Wednesday morning at this point and I needed to get up at about 8.30 in order to reshoot my take because now we need to we need to include this part about the bow and Evan as well so it's like that came together really fast as and we're like okay are we gonna have the bow or not and it all like Evans I know like you you pulled long hours that night Evan and I were on the phone I think Jake had finally was getting a little shut-eye i thankful at that point because he was going to be going live soon anyways uh, I'll wrap it up by saying uh, there was this urgency we felt we left and right you no. Know, Countless musicians who are experiencing this dramatic gig collapse, starting with the St. Patrick's Day weekend. I mean, next to Christmas, like Sa- Patrick's Day, it's like one of the holy grails for gig time. If you're willing to play a little Irish, you know, or something that sounds even Irish to the common person who sounds Irish enough for. So that was tragic for a lot of folks I know that had, you know, big things lined up there. And so it was just like, hey, while people are still willing to donate, we need to get this off the ground. And everyone we mentioned to was was really excited. Yeah.
1: What I'd like to talk about is something that has been a core concept in a lot of the interviews that I've found myself doing with people, is what happens when something that, by its nature, particularly in the folk arts, I feel very strongly about this in the folk arts, that they're inherently a gifting ritual. I hold the idea there's kind of two human interactions. They have commodity exchange, and then they have gifting rituals. And some people have written wonderful books about this. One book's called The Gift by Lewis Hyde. I think it's just absolutely brilliant, sort of defining how each one works. And they're both necessary for us as human beings. But they are very different. They function in a different way. And so he looks at potlatches in the Pacific Northwest among the native people. He looks at what in Cornwall, how the gifting traditions and rituals go on. So folk art often is this uh, gifting process. Uh, a lot of the old people I knew in West Virginia, they might get a little money for playing at a square dance, but they weren't Bill Monroe. They were working in a in a sawmill or they were working on a farm or in a coal mine. And the music was something they were kind of gifting to their community. And I think so many artists feel this way, that they really want to make their art available, but they have to work in this uh, commodity exchange environment. So now you're... Um, You know, you're responding to this need with this gifting ritual. And this is a very elaborate gifting ritual that you're all involved in. And I just love that. I mean, I really think that we have to understand gifting again and how it works and how people can still survive, but still allow their art to to be used to the greater good. We've been going through a long period of time, particularly with all the money being associated with these very old Italian instruments and so forth, where hedge fund managers and banks are buying them. And uh, you know, we've just taken art with the idea that it's a commodity and you, know, you can get Coors beer to underwrite what your, your rock band is gonna do you know, at the festival. And now suddenly this huge event has occurred And we're all reduced back down to like, okay, what's art? How essential is it? What are the tools of art, which is the instruments, the bows? And where does the gifting come in? Where does the commodity exchange have to happen? How do people pay their bills? To me, that's at the heart of this. And that's why I was uh, really attracted to interviewing all of you about this process for you. Uh, Emerson, I talked to you, and so maybe we should go to Jason, because Jason, you're the jazz violinist, if I understand, and you're also in charge of the PR, the, getting the word out about this project. And uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about your involvement, and uh, then we'll uh, talk to our bow makers. Yeah, sure. Um, so I have, I've known Jake for
3: a couple of years now, I've been on this this journey to find a great modern maker, and I, I've been on this journey for a while. Uh, I'm, I'm a violinist myself, and I have a couple old violins that I love, but I wanted a modern maker. I wanted to be able to get, you know, get a violin from uh, somebody who I could actually meet. You know, a lot of my violins were 200 years old, and I wasn't gonna meet the maker. And I really got excited about it. So I was asking around for years um, and meeting a lot of luthiers and and just researching. And um, my path led me to Jake. And I kept hearing his name, like, oh, you gotta check out this guy. He's he's you know one of the the top up and coming from North Bennett School, a great school in Boston for for luthiers. And then him being in Vermont, and I'm a fellow New Englander as well. And it just got me got me excited about it. A friend of mine actually had bought one of Jake's violins, so I had gotten to preview one before I met Jacob. And so I, I reached out and he had just finished up a couple of violins. The timing was perfect. And he was experimenting with a few few things, and these two these two violins had didn't have a home yet. So one of them I I really fell in love with. And so um, I uh, it was instantly a big fan of of Jake's work and a big admirer of him as a as a luthier. And we became good friends as well. And so that was the initial connection. And um, it it's in my circulation of uh, some of the violins. I love to play as one of jake's Jake's violins, and I take it on the road, and uh, I play it with with my groups as well. so it's it's gotten some great use, and it's been really fun to to perform on it. So when this project came up, you know, I was also in this place where I'm seeing gig after gig get canceled, but I also really wanted to help out as well. I, I'm at this place where it's it's just as important to try to figure out our own stuff as to help out other people. And so Jake was in the early phases trying to sort out this idea. And he also floated the idea by me because he knew in order to get this to work, he would need conduits to get out in the string world. And I have a lot of connections through various camps that I do. And uh, some of the different camps I teach at that ended up getting on board, like Creative Strings Workshop, Fiddle Hell. And they have big email lists of also... Uh, enthusiastic string players, and so when he floated the idea by me and thought, "I we we need some people like you on board to just help get the word out," and um, it, I was like, "This is this works out perfect." And who better than somebody who is a big admirer of his work and plays his violin to help to help just get the word out and uh, connect some of the dots that needed to happen.
1: Uh, and we did interview Chris Howes, by the way. So you you mentioned creative strings. And uh, just do a riff, if you can, as a jazz musician, on improvisation in music and what you're doing in this whole thing. I mean, this is a great improvisation, isn't it? About how you're going to use technology in new ways and touch people and get them excited to uh, buy raffle tickets, right?
3: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's creative... (laughs) Aspects in uh, improvisation and every everything that we do. I think it, it per, you know permeates my entire life through my music, but also, you wake up in the morning. We're trying to figure out improvising how we're going to you know make a living. How are we going to be creative? And then also, how can we like I, I put our thinking caps together, and how can we share this great cause? And so for sure, there's always. There's always a lot of um, improvisation that's that's happening with every facet of of things that that we're involved in.
1: For some time, I've been thinking of an idea. You, you have community supported agriculture. I'm sure you have some of those in Vermont CSAs.
2: Yeah, yeah, very much, it's very popular around here.
1: Well, I've thought for a long time there should be CSAs, meaning community supported arts, <laughs> that it would have that. That it would have that model, meaning that people would beforehand create a structure of financing for artists who would either create art that went out to individuals or went to public art, and this fund would be paying for it. But it would give artists in advance a knowledge of what they could, what they knew would be their support level going forward uh, as they created art and responded to the needs in their community. But they would make a commitment to the community, that they would stay in that community. So if they suddenly, for whatever reason, became the hot, you know, the flavor of the month suddenly in popular culture, they wouldn't leave. They were committed to this two or three year period to that same community that we start supporting our local artists. I think if we had had any of those structures in place like that, the shock to artists, the the fear, the the, sudden loss of your work and not knowing what's going to happen next week or next month it would have been less. It's just a different idea for how we can think about these things. Anybody want to talk about uh, how important it would be to know that you have some ongoing level of support so that you could continue or experiment with your art? Or is it just the nature of the beast? We're just all out on the edge and trying to make it up the best we can as we go along. Maybe we like it that way, by the way. Anybody got anything to say about that particularly? Yes. Uh, Eben.
4: Yeah, Joe. I think uh, what comes to mind for me anyway, you know, I love that idea. I also feel like health insurance, (laughs) you know, things, social support networks, free people up to be creative, and whether that's artistic creativity or entrepreneurial or whatever, not having... I know certainly here for us, uh, secure health insurance isn't isn't uh, easy um, or or cheap, and uh, you know this doing a project like this or the idea of community support at anything feels like we're taking on a project that uh, maybe would be better handled <laughs> at some other level, um, and uh, it's great. I love being a part of a community, and I think it's important that we're engaging with one another. But uh, I think there's also some bigger bigger issues there.
1: I think, in, uh, and I'm speaking more broadly, I'm looking at a number of people in the middle of their lives. I'm 70 years old, so. And I've been watching this phenomena where we are very close to making a decision that anyone who's going to run for the top leadership position in our country is going to be well into their 70s. And uh, looking for my son's generation, who he's just turned forty. You know, where's the leadership coming up through the next generation? I think that Bernie gave voice to this idea of, and we won't get into the politics of it, but it's all related. What he was really getting at was either universal income or a hybrid universal services. Uh, but those are two of the things that are going to have to happen in this age of automation at some point. And I think young people instinctively knew that's where he was going, and, uh, and he got a lot of support that was quite surprising. Of course, he's from Vermont, so certainly we could talk about this. But um, you know, what's emerging in this project you're doing, from my point of view, is you know, the, the nuts and bolts of what is leadership, How does, what form does it take? How does it move this thing forward, a restructuring of how people receive what they need and can contribute meaningfully to the society and not create a bunch of stuff we don't need just because it's a job, Uh, like more plastic. You know, we really don't need more plastic. Anyhow, how? (laughs) now I'm going on. So let's, um, let's go now, Evan, about your specific role as being one of the bow makers. How'd that all happen?
4: Sure. So, uh, Jake and I, I think, have had, as he mentioned, a, a long relationship. I've known him a long, long time, and uh, one of the things I love about it is that he, uh, he, and I bounce ideas off of each other all the time. You know, we talk pretty regularly when the isolation's getting to us, maybe, <laughs> and uh, he has. Tons of really creative ideas and creative uh, solutions to problems, and and I think this is this is the one that has sort of grown legs, but uh, that that well is pretty deep. And I will admit that when he <laughs> when he first uh, when he first talked to me about it, and it was a very sort of this little kernel of an idea, and I saluted his bravery (laughs) first and foremost uh i think a live stream for for those of us who work alone in a shop a live stream is a terrifying idea um i think would be the right word for it and you know he um he told me the idea and then he very quickly invited me to be a, a part of it this was all before he had spoken to emerson or anything and and, um, and I, I will admit that initially, uh, if my memory serves, I sort of, I sort of begged off. I said, uh, it's really a great idea. You should do it. I don't know that I want to live stream <laughs> making a bow, um, personally. And he, I think he messaged me later that night and said, oh, it's not going to work. Uh, it's legal reasons, so on and so forth. And it, it. Couldn't have been a day more than a day later. He said, "Hey, it's happening," um, and I started thinking about uh, you know all of the same things that that he had mentioned. We had talked about all of the same things. You know, um, friend losing losing income. Uh, both of us lost in, uh, some small part of our income through playing, and just recognized that uh, we were in for a long, hard few months, at least. And for me personally, the idea of sitting down at the bench to make this, this thing, this bow that I don't know the next time I'm going to have an opportunity to show it to a musician who has a a livelihood. And so what's, you know, it's really hard to sit down and motivate to to do that work. And as I thought about this more and more, I thought, you know, I, I do want to be a part of this. I don't, want to live stream anything. I know that about myself, but at, at the same time, really wanting to contribute in some way. And I think the sort of the, the beauty of making it a package was appealing, you know, the sort of the, sort of felt like it sort of filled filled a, um, filled a void or made it, made it a, a more round hole uh, idea uh, was very appealing, uh, and so as I was starting to think about how I might be able to do that, the idea of a collaboration uh, sort of occurred to me. Uh, there's great histories of collaborations in bow making, um, probably in violin making also, but certainly in bow making, we see historic collaborations. Evan and I um, have gone to the Oberlin Bowmakers Workshop. We've been there together, I think, six times, and every year we make a bow two, two bows actually as a collaboration among the whole, the whole workshop um, that helps to feed us uh, for that week or those two weeks. And as soon as I started thinking collaboration, i Evan was the first person I thought of uh, just uh, I've enjoyed working with him at Oberlin. I love his work and uh, I felt like he had a style that sort of lent itself to well, to my style, but also to the idea of a, a collaborative effort. And, and I felt like we could make something really appealing between the two of us. And the added benefit was uh, he is the only person outside of New England in all of this and a tremendous musician and player who's connected to other players in another part of the, of the country. And so the idea being we want to reach as many people as we can, and we want to uh, raise as much money as we can and help as many people as we can. And so by getting outside of Vermont, which is a delightful place to live with a tiny population, had some appeal, uh, at, least, at least to me. And so I called him and we uh, made some quick decisions over the phone, and, and then I recorded the video that, uh, that Emerson alluded to earlier.
1: I interviewed uh, uh, Noel Burke in Ireland, of course, and a great bow maker, and a lot of the discussion, or a good part of the discussion, was about how he would t- a client musician would come to him, say he wanted a bow, and he said, "Well, I need to see how you play. I need to see what you're expecting in a bow, and and this relationship of making the bow for a person, a musician." in this case, which I've never heard before, somebody making a bow, other than the kits you get from China and so forth, do come with a bow. But I mean, you're making a bow for the violin together. I I just think that is a unique uh, thing. And uh, is there any kind of thinking went on philosophically about how do I make a bow for this particular violin? Like a discussion going on, what kind of wood? What kind of sound do you think this violin's going to have? What are you shooting for? I guess it's a Guinier model, and did that factor into how you built your bow, or you and Evan together?
4: I have obviously the benefit of having heard several of Jake's violins played, and um, and I know him as a player, and I you know I've um, uh, worked with him forever, so I I certainly have an idea in my mind of what what might match it well. Um, I I mean, Evan, maybe you can say more about this, but it certainly is. um, There's some, I don't know, black magic. Uh, What what happens when you're trying to pick a piece of wood to go with a violin or a player? And, you know, Evan um, and I, after we had discussed what we what style bow we were going to make, we we consulted on materials and stuff like that. And even though I couldn't hold the wood in my hand like you get a vibe from it from from a picture and from talking to evan about the piece of wood and that certainly informed the my vote but ultimately that was evan's choice because obviously we couldn't be in the same room to do that
1: evan why don't you then tell me that part and then which parts you each did for the bow yeah of course um
5: well as stepping back just a, a little bit to uh, the bow matching the violin, I think that's that's a really interesting um, question that you have, and I don't know, Eben and I probably would agree about this that you know within the the realm of a good instrument or, or a good bow, you know, there's certain fundamental things that have to be there, and I would say with a bow that that we go for something that has incredibly immediate response, evenness, and we try to suppress rosiny, you know, white noise in the sound, Um, you know, make something that's, that's very full and very, um, you know, focused the design of the bow. And so I'm, I'm a decent imposter violinist. I'm actually a cellist, but I kind of play violin. some. I sort of actually have a little too much fun doing that. So, you know, I think all bow makers have their, their sort of methods of, of testing things and, Feeling what they're doing and, and wanting to go a certain direction with their work. And, you know, Evan and I have talked about this for many years, you know, all, all of the bow making community has that there's a lot of problem solving. And and we sometimes look at old bows by Tourt or Picat or Bajot and we can't work out why something where the camber has been totally screwed up or it's or, or you know, there's something just horrifically wrong with it. Still works so well. You know, that's a that's an example of a of a of a you know sort of a, a problem solving puzzle for for us. So anyway, I think for this, not having seen the violin, I think we're 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 really just striving to make something that works really well. That's going to appeal to most people. You know, bows are subjective. I don't know if you could. The same fabulous tour. You know, one person may love it, one person may despise it. You know, you just—it's—it's really—it's really difficult to to know for sure. So, when we started this, um, well, I always feel like my my wood in my workshop is a little bit picked over, and I have a trash can in the corner with a bunch of pernambuco sticks sticking out of it, and every once in a while, when I go to my basement, and I get boards and I look at them and chop them up and throw them in the bathtub and measure the density. Um, So I kind of did that for show right at the beginning of this, after Eben and I first talked about it. And then I looked at some other wood that I had and um, kind of selected three sticks that were, um, Eben might have to jog my memory here, but I think we had a, um, a boring but very perfect reliable one. A slightly more beautiful, sexy kind of brownish one, and then a really garish, flashy kind of light colored one with stripes in it and they were all really nice pieces of wood but but Eben, of course, um, opted for the sexy one because that's that's how he rolls so so um <laughs> so the the uh the sort of initial conversation with Eben um. Also backing up a little bit, um, he, when he suggested um, or, you know, mentioned the concept of live streaming this, I kind of recoiled in horror because that would be hours of me on my hands and knees looking for pieces of pearl on the floor of my shop, probably dropping tools or I sat on a sound post setter yesterday. I don't even know why I had that out, but it hurt, wrecked my pants. So um, so, so we, we kind of agreed on, on that boundary, um, in terms of live streaming the project, but we did really arrive at a concept for what we want to do really, really fast. I was actually walking home from the shop and I was watching some dogs there's a little dog park here. And I was kind of standing there talking on the phone and, and Eben and I both, for some reason I've, you know, throughout the years have sort of made a lot of Peugeot inspired bows. The reason I, like Peugeot, personally, um, there are a few reasons. He's a a maker from Miracor, sort of the first half of the 19th century. I'm drawn to earlier period bows before 1860 or so, just in terms of the style and the character and the beauty and originality of them. And Peugeot had a a real technical gift and a a real sculptural beauty to his work. Um, Amazing materials. Um, He used lots of that green pearl that you see in German bows, you know, the model green pearl, which I like. I, I think it's beautiful. And um, it's just there's a, there's a general appeal to me um, in terms of Pajot, in, in terms of his bow-making. And so um, I know Eben had been doing a lot of things in that style at Oberlin over the last few years. And so we just thought, okay, let's just... You know, we're not copying a particular bow. We're maybe sort of copying a a time period um, for Peugeot, um, you know, sort of maybe like an 1830s kind of time period. But our work, the style of our work goes beautifully together. And it was kind of amazing, even in terms of the geometry of the frog fitting and the screw and the screw hole and all these little nitty gritty bits of making a bow. I don't think we spent more than 10 minutes discussing that. And then we spent the next two hours of our call just talking about whatever. So, so that, so that, that part of it was, was really, really super easy. And, um, you know, Eben's a fabulous craftsman and that was just really easy to, to sort of put that together.
1: So what parts did you make of the bow and what part did, uh, Eben make?
5: Right. Um, so Eben made the frog and the button and, uh, I made the stick, the Pernambuco stick, and then I assembled the fittings, which are, you know, what we call the frog and the button. I assembled those to the stick and um, that's how we d- divided it up. And now he's gonna get it back to stamp his name onto and to put the wrapping on. We're gonna do a silk and silver tinsel wrapping and and uh, hopefully my hair is not too dirty. If it is, he's gonna have to rehair it at the end.
1: I want to make a statement here just for the listener that, uh, there's a great deal of generosity in this and, uh, permabuco is a, uh, the source of that is, is in question right now for many reasons and younger makers particularly, uh, don't have access to good sticks, good wood for a lot of different reasons and, uh, and so to take a good piece, a really good piece of wood, knowing that it's going to be a bow and taking all that time and then donating it to this cause. i And the same thing with Jacob and, you know, the wood he's using. You know, most people might not even consider what, how much value there is in those materials, let alone a tremendous amount of time. And the time is where the real uh, contribution is being made. But uh, it's you know, back to that gifting idea, uh, it's... Uh, it's a, uh, it's wonderful, really. So I, I appreciate that, <laughs> what you're doing. Where are you located, by the way, Evan?
5: Oh, um, my shop is in Denver, Colorado. It's um, sort of downtown. And, you know, I envy you guys um, in Vermont. I, I'm just a mile away from the Symphony Hall, which is inactive now. But um, in, you know, during the Times when society is functioning somewhat properly, I have a lot of clients walking in my door here, and I do a lot of repair work and, and rehairs and things like that.
1: And this idea came into my mind too. Uh, do you wear a mask when you're doing any of this part of the work? Or, or Eben, do you wear a mask? Because, of course, this has become uh, iconic. Uh, and so you're, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> whatever you want to say about that, because you're dealing with some materials that are, are toxic or or to some people are very allergic to, I know that. Yeah, um,
5: I'll, I'll answer that first, Evan. I, I, um, I sporadically work a mask uh, or I, I sporadically wear a mask. I I just, I can't do it for hours a day. It's that um, I'm, I'm getting practice now. Maybe, maybe it's, you know, maybe we're all going to learn how to wear masks, um, but but I have a, a nice window and a breeze that blows through my shop and blows the dust into the ret- rest of the uh, Alliance Francaise here where my, my shop is, into the classrooms. And I also don't really have – I have horrible allergies to like everything else in the world, but I'm not really um, – I don't react at all to Pernambuco. Um, but I wear, I wear a mask when I, when I work on the uh, Pearl, the Shell in particular. Yeah.
1: And Eben, what, what do you have to say about that?
4: Yeah. Uh, same thing. I, I wear, I actually wear a, a respirator when I use Pearl or, um, or if I'm, if I'm roughing out ebony, uh, like on a bandsaw, I use, or a actually anything, anything that's going to generate a lot of dust. We have colleagues who wear them every second they're in the shop and, um, some with thick accents that make it impossible to understand them. Uh, And, but, uh, it occurred to me, certainly as I was, as I was working on the, on the frog and button for this, is that when I pulled on the respirator that, uh, it had a little, a little more weight to it this time.
1: Hmm. The, uh, several people I've interviewed have talked about, uh, makers, particularly, I never met a bow maker to say this, but I have met several violin makers who have named their violins. Uh, there's a woman, uh, the Vittori family in in uh, Florence. The daughter of the of her father's violin maker. She is too Sophia. She uh, she names them after the bridges of Venice and the different cities in Italy. So, uh, have you thought about naming this violin? And uh, Seven Stars is great. <laughs> you know, great image. You know, it's it's very uh, Tolkien, almost. You know, whether that would be a a label inside it, but I'm just wondering if it's it's going to have a name. And the last thing I'll mention, and this is to Jason, uh, the Canoe Brothers are are great old time fiddlers out here in the Pacific Northwest. And talking to Greg, uh, he talked about how he's really keeping pretty detailed notes about the history of the violin that he has. Uh, you know, the cool things that have happened, where he's been with it, the things that have happened. You know, what we would give for those older violins like Jason owns. They come with no story. Uh, we, you know, Maybe that's great for the imagination because we have to imagine those stories. But here you have an opportunity with a new violin to build a story that goes with it. And I, I guess I'm starting to encourage people who have new violins that play them to you know, keep a sort of some kind of journal, a physical thing that goes with the violin. So no matter what happens, um, I have an old French violin. I would love to know who owned it. So just, just an idea. But because uh, you've created this thing collectively, which I really do appreciate. Yeah, Jacob, if you want, if somebody would like to join in, and I think we'll uh, we'll wind this up. This has been. I really appreciate your time on this too.
2: Yeah, thanks for thanks for having us. Um, well, I, just on that, you know, it's the story of violins. So, on I wrote on the inside of the upper rib of the violin before assembling all the pieces. Um, I wrote a little message, and it's it's written in a place where um, you will not be able to see the message unless the strings are off, and you pull out the end, the little end pin, and look through that end pin as if you're setting the sound post. And so, most people won't 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 see this on a day to day, but it's it's there, visible for you know for people to find later. Let's see. So I wrote um, this violin was made by Jacob Brillhart and raffled to raise aid for struggling musicians during the COVID nineteen pandemic in the spring of twenty twenty. Um, so. Just kind of a little, you know. It's, it's the violin. I, I, don't, I don't. know how I could go about naming a violin. It would be hard to 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 find a, a single word to name a violin. But writing the writing a, a note to to for future generations to uh to find was something that I thought would be important.
1: There's a, um, and I don't want to get too lengthy on this. I. One time, a fellow gave a talk about the social life of information. He's he from England. He wrote a great book about this. And he's saying why uh, distance learning really doesn't work very well, because people love to be in a classroom. You know, they love to be physically around people. Information comes in a context. But his the example he gave was so brilliant, and I think of it as applicable to now. And what happened is he was in this, um, in Madrid or someplace, in some a library, and he was working on some historical, he's a historian, and he saw this guy next to him, an older fella, and he had a stack of letters, and these are letters from 1500 or something, and the guy would pick up a letter, he would open it up, he'd take the letter out, and he would smell it. And then he'd put it aside to one side, and he'd smell another one. And, and, and he was sorting the letters by whatever he was smelling. <laughs> and this guy's English. He said, we never do this. We never go up to somebody and say, you know, what what the hell are you doing? He said, but I couldn't stand it. So I went over and said, what's going on? And he said, well, I'm, I'm studying the uh, mercantile history of this particular time in Spain. And there was a, a terrible—I uh, think it was cholera, but it was— uh, some uh, disease that was spread around, and they believed back then if they sprinkled paper with vinegar, it sort of acted as a, a you know a protective measure and he said, the vinegar you can still smelt in the paper you know five six hundred years later, and he said, so when I would read a letter, it might say, we'd love to get that loan from your bank and blah blah blah. It wouldn't really say that the town was being devastated by the disease, but the the vinegar smell would say, this is the context in which this letter was written. You know, this violin is being made at a certain time in human history that is is unlike anything else. And uh, I think what you've done by putting that in there is really important, and uh, so anyhow.
0: Yeah, right on. I wanted to add in, speaking of seven stars and multiple stars, five stars here, well, I'm perhaps a star, sort of a sub-star, you never know. But um, I could be a planet. I'd be very happy as a planet. Moon even, also a great option. But anyways, consider all these, all of you folks on the call stars uh, in my my sky inspiring me. And uh, so I know, slightly corny, but useful metaphor. Uh, and speaking of which, uh, there is more stars not present here. Already there's only six here, and we're talking about seven. So I think we need a definite shout out to... Um, just like how a violin and a bow are a union of masculine and feminine energies. We've had an incredible powerhouse of women who have helped with this project right off the bat. Rachel Reeds, a good friend of Jake's, and who I've known of as a you know fabulous musician, has you know, she dived in to help with our Facebook page and uh, a lot of the seven stars board, half of it is is also, you know, women who are helping out with the financial end and publicity. And we also have um, folks like the wonderful uh, Kimberly Durflinger, who is helping us with our Instagram page. She's super active with that, very enthusiastic. And also uh, Soyeon Im, who is this um, fantastic YouTuber who came up with the idea of having a soundtrack contest challenge and um, and was like, well, I'll do it if I can do it with Jason. And I was like, Jason, you on? He's like, let's do this. So... Yeah, I just also wanted to make make sure that they were named that they've been really a central part of this project. And the reason, you know, we're here is us five is because we were initial five peeps happens to be of the the male variety. Um, but also wanted to note that just like the the making of these incredible mediums for the art of sound and all the essential medicine it provides for all of us during these great times of transition and transformation. Also that uh, going back to the premise that this whole effort is an act of unifying, uh, generous hearts together. So big thank you to them as well.
1: And so a raffle ticket is $20, I understand. A single raffle ticket, is that correct?
0: That's right. And if you get more tickets, then you get tickets free and increase your odds. So, hey, why not go in deep, get those numbers up for yourself. And also, we not only have added a great Geva case to the project, which Jake just uploaded a, a fun video today of opening it up. And um, so thank you to Geva and um, Baker Violin Shop for that. And to hold the bow as well, these precious items, keep them safe and uh, ready for action. And then now we're also offering second and third place winners. Uh, second place winners will... They'll all get um, uh, this high quality rosin um, from Cremona in America. So we'll have 12 second place winners for the signature formula and also um, 24 third place winners will also get uh, their choice of rosin. And we thought that'd be in a way the rosin maker approached us and we realized hey that'd be a great way to uh, help people feel like they have you know more uh, sort of skin in the game, so to speak, and uh, spread the love.
1: That sounds great. For $20, and you could buy more tickets than $20. I, I get this. You could have a family heirloom unlike anything. This, 300 years later, your family would have this to talk about. It's really worth something. Thank you so very much. It's been a real pleasure talking to all of you, and uh, we'll see where we can go with this to help you with your raffle.
0: Thank you so much, Joe. Thank you look forward to rosining that bow and playing it yeah. hope someday <laughs> thanks everybody you guys rock cheers
1: and before we say goodbye let's listen to Jason Onick play a tune on a violin made by Jacob Brillhart <laughs> Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. To learn more about the Violin Building for Musician Aid project, please visit sevenstarsarts.org. We will also post that link on our website, rosinthebow.org. Please help them out, and we'll all get through this together. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project, to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. ¶¶¶¶